Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 7. The last time we saw the selection of seven deacons with the focus mainly on Stephen. And today we're going to see Stephen's intense defense and witness before the council or the Sanhedrin. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, where, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would sojourn in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. So the last time we saw Stephen's arrested, a little context, if you weren't here, Stephen's arrested. He's taken before the Sanhedrin on charges of blasphemy. Blasphemy against the temple, against God, against Moses, and against the law. It was a shotgun approach. They pretty much threw everything at Stephen. By this time in history, though, the temple was idolized. It was like a sort of temple olatry. They would swear by the gold of the temple. The structure of the temple you know, was a, a pride symbol of the nation. They also idolized the law. But the ironic thing was they couldn't keep the law. None of us can keep the law. They idolized Moses. But they continually rejected Moses and most of the prophets, or all the prophets, which was an ultimate rejection of God because he sent them. So here, the high priest is standing up, and he's having Stephen answer these charges. This would have been, according to history, uh, the same Annas and, and, and um, Caiaphas. Annas was deposed by the Romans, and Joseph Caiaphas was put in his place as son-in-law. They still would have been active at this time. And they're allowing Stephen to answer his charges. So we're going to see Stephen's defense using Israel's history. What we're going to read now is going to be chronological. It's going to be in order of time. It's going to be detailed. And it's an exposition on itself. So basically it's self-explanatory. Stephen wants it to be self-explanatory. But what can we see uh, by reading this in the life of Abraham, who's the first person really, aside from God, that Stephen mentions? Well, God appeared to Abraham... And he called Abraham while he was living in pagan Babylon. You see the words Mesopotamia used um, prior to that in Genesis. You see he was in Ur of the Chaldees or the land of the Chaldees. All these are synonymous. It's the same basic area. If you have a study Bible in the back, you'll see some of these maps. And what you'll find out if you put it to a map of a uh, contemporary map today, that this area was uh, basically modern day Iraq. So there's a lot of history rich in, in Iraq. But Abraham wasn't a perfect guy. He wasn't particularly le leading a holy life. And he certainly wasn't living in a holy city. But he did respond in faith to the calling of God. Just as God called Abraham while he wasn't practicing holiness, God also meets us where we're at. When God called me, I wasn't perfected. 
I didn't get my life perfect and say, okay, God, now I'm ready for you. I was doing my thing, but God called me, and I responded in faith. I can't tell you how many people will say to me, you know, it's funny, I have the, the title of pastor now. Now, all of a sudden, people look at me and think I'm perfect. Like, all of a sudden, I changed because I got a, a title that I became perfect. Well, that's not true. Just ask my wife. I'm not perfect. But people use that as an excuse. They say, well, you know, I'm not good enough yet. You know, I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. But that's a lie. That's a lie from Satan. Because if we wait to be perfect to come to God, we'll never come to God. Similar to Abraham, God often calls us when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. But he makes great promises to us, as he did with the children of Israel. And it's not because of our goodness that he makes these promises to us. It's because of his goodness. All we have to do it's a very simple equation, repent and believe. God made it so that the simplest of persons could understand the message of salvation. Okay, I lived my life up to this point, and Lord, I, I want to say that everything I've learned up to this point, I'm willing to put on the shelf, read your word, follow you, and, and change my ways based on your truths, and believe and follow you. Diachronically, the religious leaders would have turned their noses up at Abraham. And what that means is, it means if you examine the situation from the time of Stephen going back to the time of Abraham, you're examining time, right? We would have seen that the religious leaders of Stephen's time, if they actually would have met Abraham, even though they supposedly revered him, they would have turned their noses up at him. Why? Because the father of the Jewish nation was not particularly impressive. To their, in their eyes, he would have been a simpleton. If you think about it, he didn't have, Abraham didn't have much of the fanfare as the contemporary Jewish nation had. They had the temple, they had the law, they had the prophets, and they had their history. But what Abraham did have was faith. Faith to believe the promises that God laid out to him. And the majority of those promises weren't even fulfilled in Abraham's lifetime, but he still believed God. He talks about, uh, in verse... He talks about uh, circumcision in verse 8. Circumcision, most of you know, is the cutting of the foreskin around the penis. And it's a sign of the covenant or the agreement between God and his people. If you read Romans 4.11, it kind of spells that out a little bit. What circumcision was, was an outward sign of an inward heart of the nation. It was an outward sign of something that they did to show that inwardly as a nation they believed God. It was a sign of the covenant. Now, interestingly enough, over time, that changed. It became just a ritual. Because in Jeremiah 4.4, Jeremiah says to the people, he, they needed to circ circumcise around their heart. So he, he's, he's, it's in a figurative sense, right? What he was saying was that circumcision became a, a useless ritual that had no meaning over time. And it had no meaning in Stephen's time either. It was just something that they did. Why? Tradition. Everybody else did it, so we do it, right? And I can liken that a little bit to, you know, I think it's, it's appropriate. We're just going to have the baptisms on Saturday. What is baptism? Well, it's, it is different because, you know, it's open to males and females. But baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, right? As a Christian, you, you're showing the world that I'm a follower of Christ. You, you, you go in the water and it covers you, and it's symbolic of dying with Christ, dying to the old nature, and then when you come up out of the water, it's, it's, the, you know, it's the new nature. It's, it's the spirit. You're born again, right? It's a, a picture of the resurrected Christ. 
But baptism, just like any tradition or ritual, can become rote. It can have no meaning, right? But what Stephen was showing these religious leaders was a few things. Number one, God sovereignly, sovereignly works in ways that we don't expect. And that was Jesus, all over Jesus. You know, they, they looked at Jesus, and he wasn't this conquering guy with the sword, and he didn't come out in, in a blaze of glory. And, you know, they just couldn't put their, wrap their minds around Jesus. But God did something that they didn't expect, right? And two, man is supposed to respond in faith regardless of the circumstances that are set before us. That's, our, that's what we're supposed to do. I was encouraging uh, a friend not too long ago, and we, we like to have these discussions. You know, I'm, I love the guy, and I'm trying to talk to him about the Lord and all. And he made a comment to me, and he said, uh, I don't have to read the Bible to be close to God. So we had this discussion, and he said, you know, I'm sorry if I offended you. I said, listen, you're not offending me. I say this more out of encouragement and love for you. I'm trying to explain to him how we, we encourage people. And all we have to do is say yes with our heart, as Abraham did, and many others that went before us. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, said to Joseph, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent that our fathers first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the pharaohs. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. And you see, this is like, a, um, again, it's, it's history. And those of you who grew up with all the Bible stories, he just has a, a piece of each of these patriarchs over time. And, and these stories start to come to life. But Stephen moves from Abraham now to Joseph. Joseph was a picture of tragedy to triumph. He went from being enslaved, from being a slave, to the second in command in the most powerful nation back then, the nation of Egypt. Just to show you a little bit about what Joseph went through, just to help you understand how remarkable this young man was, Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him, and they, they threw him in a pit. Well, that's not fun. I mean, he wants to get out, and he's stuck in the pit. And they're conspiring about what they're going to do with him they first decided, let's kill him, because, you know, they were jealous of him. But then they decided to sell him to some slave traders. So Joseph now is separated from his family, whom he loved. He loved his father very dearly and probably thought, I'll never see him again. And he was sold into slavery. Unfortunately, when we talk about history, we throw that term around loosely. I saw the movie um, Amistad. How many of you saw Amistad? It was about a, a, a ship that came, and it wasn't necessarily designed for slaves, but it actually had a historical precedence. And you got to see how these slaves lived, how they were taken from their families, how they were chained, how they were uh, made to stay in cramped quarters, um, how they were abused. And it just is what, a, I mean, if you really think about it, slavery is awful. Unfortunately, men have been doing it for thousands of years, and they're still doing it today around the world. And then, to make matters worse, 
when he got out of the issue with the slavery, he was thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. So Joseph had a rough life, but Joseph trusted God through it all. And sometimes I think about if something's happening in my life, I think about Joseph. I'm like, okay, he, I don't have it so bad. Joseph had it pretty bad and he still trusted God, right? But what can we learn from the life of Joseph? Joseph was a type of savior or deliverer, but he was initially rejected by his own people. And Joseph had to go through the depths of depravity before he could save his people. Does that sound familiar? That says Jesus written all over it. It was a typification of Jesus or a foreshadowing. A lot of the uh, symbols and and the uh, things that you can learn from the Old Testament point to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is written all throughout the Old Testament. Both Jesus and Joseph were loved by their fathers, and they were rejected by their brothers. They were taken to Egypt. They were falsely accused. They were exalted after suffering, and they forgave their accusers. A lot of similarities between Joseph and Jesus. So Stephen's building the case of number one with Joseph. Rejection was a common theme with the Jewish people, rejecting their God-appointed leaders, and the faith to believe God can work out seemingly impossible problems. And more specifically, the faith to trust God in situations where we don't think events in our lives are playing out properly. That was a common theme in Stephen's time. The religious leaders refused to trust what God was doing with the Messiah. And I'm going to keep taking you back and forth, so bear with me, because Stephen takes us back and forth. You're going to keep seeing the, the, the contemporary situation in the first century of Stephen's time, and then we're going to go back thousands of years to the patriarchs and move through history. And you, you can see the comparison between the nation of the Jewish people and where it had come by the time of Stephen's time, right? And I look about us um, when we think about impossible situations. Sometimes we go through different stages. Sometimes we go through the frustration stage. Something is happening in your life, you don't understand it, it caught you by surprise, and you're like, Lord, it's like the frustration stage. Lord, what's going on here? It, you know, it, it's working out all ro- wrong. You don't understand. I wonder who we think we're talking to sometimes when we talk to the Lord. He sees everything, right? And then sometimes we can go through the manipulation stage in prayer. Okay, Lord, I'm, I'm over that part. I feel better. I'm calm. I've got a peace. But, you know, Lord, if you make the situation work out for me really well, I could really glorify you, Lord. It's like a give and take going on here, right? So we don't understand. But if Joseph could trust God and be obedient, notwithstanding slavery in prison, and he was just a man, then he's certainly a great example for all of us, and we can certainly follow in his footsteps. Verse 17. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. But when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? 
But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So Stephen goes into the story of Moses now. Well, the children of Israel did prosper in Egypt. Joseph came. He brought his family uh, because of the, the famine. Uh, they did well. And then a new pharaoh took over who was hostile towards the children of Israel. Just want to give you a little bit of um, Egyptian history because through the, through, from Genesis all the way through the scripture, Egypt is really a main player back and forth. And there's a lot of... Um, dealings that the children of Israel had over the years with the Egyptians. The word Pharaoh means great house, but it came to be the king's title. There was many unnamed Pharaohs in the Bible and many named. If you've read the whole Bible, you remember Pharaoh Shishak, Necho, and Hophra, and they're also in uh, archaeological history. The well, most well-known Pharaoh that we know of in our society is King Tut, right? When I was a kid, they, it was a song. Somebody made a song about King Tut. <laughs> but it was, uh, he was Pharaoh Tutankhamun, so we're all familiar with him. Um, what happened was the pharaohs had a, a dynasty, the, what they call the Hyksos dynasty. Uh, Apepi II was supposedly the guy who uh, favored Joseph and, and the, uh, the Jewish people. But when that, the Hyksos has changed to the different dynasty, you had different pharaohs who came in, Thotmes II and III as well as Amenhotep, Ramses, and Merneptah, which some of you may be familiar with if you study Egyptian history. But the point is that archaeological history is synonymous, is, is parallel with the Bible history. So those people who say, well, who haven't read the Bible and say it's just a bunch of stories made up by men, they actually haven't read it because there's a lot of rich history in the scriptures. So all in all, I'm trying to explain is that there were many... Egyptian dynasties, about 30 in all. So there was sometimes favorability towards the Jewish people and sometimes not favorability towards the Jewish people, and it went back and forth depending on who was in charge. So an overview over Moses' life. As a baby, Moses miraculously was saved by the edict to destroy the Hebrew babies. Kind of reminds you of another edict to destroy the babies of another deliverer, and that was Jesus Christ. Remember Herod's edict to destroy all the, the little boys, right, in, in Bethlehem. Both of these men were deliverers. At the age of 40, Moses wants to deliver his people, and he starts his career by killing an Egyptian. And he finds out really quickly that he's not well-received by his own people, so he flees to Midian. At the age of 80, Moses has the well-known burning bush experience. Most people who aren't even familiar with the Bible have heard of the burning bush, right? And he gets the, the nod from God, so to speak, to deliver his people. 
But now it's the way God wants it done, not the way Moses wants it done. And the next 40 years, Moses and the children of Israel wander in the wilderness and die because of the sin of unbelief on the part of the children of Israel and disobedience on the part of Moses. So what can we learn again about Moses' life? Moses was a type of deliverer or savior. He was also rejected by his own people on many occasions. Again, who does that sound like? Who does that point to? Okay, Stephen's making these parallels. You're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, but let me take you back into our history. You know, we're all brothers and, and fellow Jews. Let me take you back into history. All the deliverers, all the saviors, you know, types of the savior were always rejected, right? So open your minds a little bit here. The irony is Moses was trained and educated in the ways of the Egyptians may have helped him in this new ministry that he had leading the children of Israel. And Stephen was trained and educated in God's word, and the work of ministry may have helped him and grow. So when he laid this heavy witness on the Jewish leaders, he had some preparation beforehand, right? And as we'll see later as we go into Paul's conversion experience, that most likely a lot of the things that Stephen said and did and the way he died had such an effect on Paul that he almost went mad at first, just persecuting the church, and then he was cut to the heart when the Lord appeared to him and he was ready to start following him. And Paul, you see later on in his writings, regrets some of the things he did. No doubt he saw the way Stephen died. No doubt he saw the way Stephen lived, and it had an effect on him. So it wasn't a wasted life. You know, I think of, on a personal note, um, for years I led a uh, Bible study on Sunday nights in the area. It was a handful of people, uh, and it didn't seem to grow much. You know, the most we had was maybe 20, 25 people. And I just was like, all right, Lord, where is this going? Is this going somewhere, or do I stay doing this, or is there something else I should do? In ministry, you, you always ask the Lord, you know, where do you want me to go? And I had no idea. However, it was like a training ground for what's happening here today. If I was thrust into this position as a pastor and I didn't have that training, I might have come up here, looked at all of you, got scared, and ran off the stage. But at least I had some training. And interestingly enough, being a police officer for 15 years also gave me training in dealing with people and public speaking. Because I've got to tell you, as a young person, I was terrified to get in front of any amount of people and talk in front of them. I was just nervous, knees knocking, feel like I'm going to pass out, anxiety, the whole deal. But, you know, I'm not saying that I'm totally relaxed up here, but it's, I enjoy it. You know, it's God has brought me to this point. But it was through training, see? Uh, and I wonder, some of you, you have a, a job that you're doing. Maybe it's a, a, a type of career, it's a job, it's something that you're doing, maybe uh, starting out in ministry, and you're asking the Lord, what is it? But be patient with him, because in time, nothing is wasted. Anything that you do now is not wasted. The Lord will use that to glorify himself. He'll use it to his advantage. And then you'll look back and say, oh, I couldn't see that from where I was, right? Whatever it is, God will eventually use it to glorify himself. Obedience always pays off. How many of you people, how many have seen the movie uh, The Karate Kid? Raise your hand. Good. So now you'll understand what I'm saying here. Karate Kid, right? It's a, it's a good example, I think. What, what was Daniel san taught? Wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, right? Scrub the deck. And all the kid wanted to do was learn karate. So he finally goes to his, his sensei and he says, he's mad at him. He goes, I've been your slave for all these weeks, cleaning your cars, waxing the cars, you know, painting the fence. He goes, and I haven't learned one bit of karate. And he says, Daniel-san, look here. He goes, <laughs> he goes, show me 
paint the fence. And Daniel's like, whoo, whoo, and he puts his hand down and he blocks it. So, you know, all that obedience paid off because he became the karate kid, right? It's all I could think of as an example. It just shows you how my mind works. Anyway, going back to the scripture, Stephen was reinforcing the theme that God can use things out of the ordinary and things that we just wouldn't expect, right? Number one, he called Abraham from Babylon. Babylon was the Mecca of idol worship. Two, he called Moses using a burning bush. How unusual was that? And three, he told Moses to take off his shoes as he was standing on hallowed ground. Hallowed ground? Moses was in Horeb, but it goes in the wilderness. But it goes to show you that God can make any place holy and he can make any person holy because he has that power. And we need to be open to what God has to show us. In my opinion, Stephen was trying to get his hearers to think outside the box. As God always outthinks us. You know, we're smart. He made us very smart. But God always outthinks us, right? If we try to figure God out, it's never going to work. There was a, um, <laughs> one thing that I wanted to focus on was God says he's the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they're, uh, they're alive. And they, they really were. They were with him, right? And Jesus in the New Testament said, don't you understand? God is the God of the living and not the dead. These saints that have passed on are not buried in the ground somewhere. Their essence, their, their, their fullness dwells with God in eternity, right? I was thinking of a, um, when I was thinking about a personal God, I was thinking about a, a secular band that wrote a song, Depeche Mode. I didn't really listen to them, but that one song stood out, Your Own Personal Jesus. And I just, actually, I downloaded some of the lyrics. And he says, Your Own Personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, someone who's there. Put me to the test, things on your chest, you need to confess, I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver. Reach out and touch faith. Now, I don't know if they were mocking Christianity, because I didn't really follow them, but that song stuck in my head, uh, or if they were affirming Christianity, but either way, wittingly or unwittingly, they got it right. Our own personal Jesus. He is personal to us. And what, he, what uh, Stephen's trying to say here is God is a personal God. God wants a relationship with us. And some people are standoffish towards God. They want to do the religious thing, the ritual thing, but, you know, we're funny about relationships, aren't we? We don't give our hearts to people right away upon meeting them first. We kind of test them out. We feel them out a little bit, right? We want to make sure that we're not going to get hurt, uh, especially if it's a romantic relationship. You take a while to get to know that person before you think about marriage and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, but God is a personal God, and I think people have the same attitude towards God. I'll do the ritual, I'll do the, the prayers, I'll do the whatever the church tells me to do, I'll give the money, but, uh, you know, I don't know him, I haven't seen him, he's, he's never, you know, come in a burning bush or whatever. So, you know, you, people are kind of standoffish towards God, but God wants, he desires that personal relationship with us. He's already taken the first step. If you're new here and you've never heard this before, God has already taken the first step with you. He gave his son to die for our sins. He didn't have to. He, the, all the fullness of God dwelled in him bodily, the Bible says, and he walked on the earth, lived a perfect life, a uh, perfectly sinless life, was persecuted, was abused by his own creation, was rejected by his own people, and he voluntarily went to the cross. Once those nails were in his wrist, he could have pulled them out. He was God. 
but he stayed there. Otherwise, there wouldn't be no, any atonement for our sins. So God has already taken the first step. If you're listening to this and you've never heard this before, he sent his son to die for your sins. So I would just say to you that um, take the next step. Reach back towards him. Have that relationship. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And that's the first step to eternal life. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a gold, they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Yes, you took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. This section spells out really the climax of the rejection of both Moses and God. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, which is where he's referring to, says to the children of Israel that God would eventually raise up a prophet, but really better than Moses, him you shall hear. Now Moses was pointing them towards the Messiah. Stephen also reaffirms the greatness of Moses in verse 38. Moses is the man who spoke directly to God and gave the children of Israel the living oracles of God. Stephen then spells out the abject rejection of both Moses and God with idolatry in the form of the golden calf. The golden calf was one of Egypt's gods. It was, you know, they were in Egypt for a while and they, of course, started to understand the culture and lived in that culture and uh, many of them were polluted by that culture. So when they came out into the wilderness, well, Moses was taken too long. So like, oh, we don't know what happened to Moses. Now let's make our own gods. So they made the gold calf, which was, again, one of Israel's, uh, I'm sorry, Egypt's gods. They worshipped animals in, in some respects, with some of their gods. And then you saw the downward spiritual spiral that led to the, the host of other idolatry in Israel's history. Um, Moloch was an Ammonite planetary god. He was associated with child sacrifice. So it was just awful. They would make statues and sacrifice their children to this false god. Remphan was another Egyptian planetary god, also known as Kian. And it's, what I find it interesting was the, they worshipped the, um, the heavenly bodies and they worshipped the animals. kind of goes back to Romans 1 where it says that people get so far away from God that they worship the creation instead of the creator. God's like, I made that planet. I made that star. I made that cow. What are you worshipping that for? I'm the one who made it, right? If you see a, a great carpenter, I've seen many men work incredibly with wood, with their hammer and their chisels, and I, I'm impressed by that. I wouldn't worship the chisel because in my hands it doesn't do so good, right? But you would say, the, the, the carpenter, what a great talent that this man has, right? And God is the, you know, the, the author of all the creation. But what I'm amazed is that uh, Stephen quotes Amos 5, he quotes Genesis, he quotes Psalms. Stephen's just, he's got no notes. I mean, he's just on fire and quoting all these things and putting them into context, right? A lot of Old Testament verses. Again, great speech, great memory, no notes. <laughs> and it's something interesting that Jesus said, and I'll, I'll just turn you to Luke 21, verse 12. 
when I was going through this, I thought of the scripture, Luke 21. He talked about the start of the, the persecution. And he says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Now, this is what Jesus taught one of his major teachings prior to him being crucified, prior to even Stephen becoming anything in the church. Um, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which you, all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And we see that in, uh, in Stephen's example. They, they get angry at him and they, and they, they attack him violently, but they don't have an answer. They can't refute him because he's got the, you know, the Holy Spirit. You know, he's got the words that are coming out, and he's fulfilling God's will. You know, I thought of, um, I thought of um, recently I had a, a barbecue for some of the, the guys at work. Uh, I, I'm, I'm noticing I'm going to be 40 this year, and 15 years after 15 years on the police force, I see these young 20-year-old cops coming onto the squad, and it's just like a flashback. You know, that was me. I remember that, the new guy coming on, and, you know, they, they got their things going on. But um, I really love them. You know, I try to be that example to them. I try to, you know, talk to them, and sometimes there's an opening, sometimes there's not. But I had a, uh, my wife and I talked about it, we prayed about it. We had a barbecue for these guys to come over, and it was cool, a lot of activities, a lot of fun. And towards the end of the night, half of them left and half of them stayed. There was not a lot of opportunities. But we finally were sitting uh, at a table having dessert, and they were trapped because I was kind of sitting at the end. So, you know, I start, it was an opening. I start talking about the Lord, and I turned to one of them and said, you didn't think you'd come to my house and stay here all day without me preaching to you, did you? And he smiled. But it was cool because, uh, I mean, it's not, it wasn't, I wasn't being persecuted. It was... You know, but it's something that we do as believers. We want to tell people the good news of salvation. I really love these guys, you know, and, and one of the things I'm praying about is before I leave uh, and come here full time, I just keep praying, Lord, raise up somebody from within that organization to be some type of spiritual mentor. You know, I'm just hoping to have an effect on some of these people. And that's, that's my prayer, my, my agonizing prayer. So I just, I know that he'll, he'll bear fruit there. But Stephen explains that God... He, he explains God's severe punishment of his people because of their great sins, their rejection of, of him in the form of idolatry. Stephen addresses his audience, which was a proud nationalistic bunch at this point. And Stephen had to remind them of their shameful history at times, their shameful side of history. Two expressions that you've heard quoted. One is, the good old days weren't always good. And the other one is, uh, time heals all wounds. What I, what I think is we, human nature is we have a way of when enough time has passed, we look at history, especially bad history, and we forget about it. It becomes sanitized. It becomes, well, that happened back then. Even what happened on September 11th. Now, people were patriotic. People were uh, flooding the churches. People were seeking God. And a year later, it was business as usual. We forgot about all those people who were murdered. And their lives cut short. Uh, so history, you know, time heals all wounds in a sense. It, it it, it kind of blurs the past after a while. And he's trying to explain to these people, listen, the past wasn't always good. Our history wasn't always good. This is what our ancestors did to God's prophets. So, you know, open your eyes, wake up a little bit here. Stephen had to expose the facade of reliance on salvation by history, salvation by lineage. And you can still see that today. 
Uh, I talked to a pastor's kid once, and he said, I'm going to go to heaven. Uh, he was actually a teen. He said, I'm going to go to heaven because my father's a pastor. I've also heard uh, people say to me, I'm going to go to heaven because I'm one of the chosen people. It's like a club. I, where do I get one of those cards? Just show it at the pearly gates or the gold card. Hey, express, you know, come right in, open the doors for Joe. It just doesn't work like that, like a gym membership card. Or, I mean, we have all these cards, supermarket cards, gym memberships. My wallet is like, you know, three feet thick. But you, you can't tin God. You know, you can't show him something and get into heaven. It doesn't work like that. And you can't ride somebody's coattails into heaven. It's between you and him. You can't look around and blend in the crowd when judgment comes. You, you, it's just going to be you, you alone with your creator, with your father who made you, who formed you in the womb, right? You need to have that relationship with him. And you won't find either of those two statements that I just made by people in either the Old or the New Testament. The only thing that guarantees salvation is repentance and belief in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you, build, will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So he, now he's starting to move a little bit quick, more quickly through history, uh, fast forwarding through uh, the history of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. The tabernacle was basically a, a portable house. They had the, the curtains and the poles, and they would you know, march through the, the desert, uh, the wilderness, and then God would have them stop, and they'd set it all up. The outer courts, the, the, you know, the holy of holies, they'd set it all up. Later on, uh, David said, Lord, I'm dwelling in, in a nice house. I want to build you a house. And God said, you know, you're a man of bloodshed, but your son will do it. So Solomon, David's son, actually built him a house, which they called the temple. So there was the tabernacle and the temple. What was significant about both of them was that the Holy of Holies was a, a cordoned off room that only the high priest could enter to you know, give, give the sacrifices to see if God would accept that sacrifice for the covering of the sins of the people. Now in that special room was a, an ark. It was basically a box that was overlaid with gold and there was a cover, a seat. And there was two cherubim fashioned with it and, and you know, gold overlaid and gold. And, uh, the Ten Commandments would be in that box. And later on, uh, Aaron's rod that budded and the golden pot of manna was also put in that box. But it was sacred. What was sacred about it was God said he promised them that his physical glory would dwell on the mercy seat. So God actually, a, a, the presence of God actually dwelled on this mercy seat, right? Now, that was, that was pretty special to the people. It was the tabernacle of meeting, the tabernacle of witness. Um, what happened was over time, well, first of all, God said, okay, I will dwell with you, and this is the, will be the setup, and this is what the, how the atonement of sins will happen through the high priest's sacrifice. But God said, be, be warned that I can't be contained anywhere. I'm God. I made the house. I made the box. You know, I made you, so my presence will dwell there, but you know, I'm everywhere. I see everything. So over the years, the temple itself, which was the vehicle to meet God, okay, started to become worshipped. They worshipped the structure, 
It was nationalistic, prideful uh, symbol. They worshipped the relics. They worshipped the gold of the temple. Jesus talks about even when they would make their oaths. I promise that I'll do this next Tuesday. Okay, uh, I swear. Well, he could say I swear and then break his oath. But if he said, I swear by the gold of the temple, oh, you were bound by that oath. That was a good oath. You had to make good on that one. So again, some of the relics, the gold, the money, the idols, you started to see people worship these things in the temple instead of worshiping God. And, you know, I, I don't see much of a difference in religion today. Um, there's, a, there's a supposedly uh, a company or somebody that actually has supposedly found the cross of Christ, and they, I don't know how they know it was the cross of Christ, but they shave off pieces of this piece of wood, and they sell it, of course, uh, to people. Now, that thing's been going on for so many years, that cross should have been gone a long time ago. But I think that the answer to that was it's the miracle of the replenishing wood of the cross of the Christ. So, you know, I'm trying, I guess I am being facetious, but it's just sad because people are looking at something, an amulet, a talisman, a charm, instead of looking at God himself. They're looking for a representation. And God says we can have that personal relationship with uh, us. We don't have to go through these things. Also, there's a church somewhere in the Middle East that has that boast that they have the foot bones of John the Baptist under the altar. That's kind of creepy. And poor guys wants to be buried and they're digging them up and taking body parts from them. I mean, come on. I promise we're not going to do any of that stuff here. <laughs> um, the Council of Trent, which was, uh, and again, this, this goes all around. Council of Trent, which is a 16th century Catholic doctrine venerates the relics. It says that you must venerate the relics. You must look at these pieces and, and give them honor. You prostrate yourself before these, these images. It's all, I, just, I have it at home. I have a copy of it. Uh, in Orthodox uh, Christian religion, there was the relief pictures, the, uh, the icons. They'd have these paintings of supposedly Mary and Jesus, and they'd actually be, you could touch them. They would you know, be like 3D. That's where the iconoclasts came from. They fought against that. It was a form of idolatry. And even in evangelistic uh, churches today, I mean, we, we're considered evangelistic, but I think a lot of times money is worshipped. The almighty dollar is, is venerated above everything else. So unfortunately, people are substituting uh, other things for the living God. And it goes back to that. He is the living God. Before we, uh, I'm actually going to stop here because there's a lot to this and I don't want to rush through it. But uh, I did want to say that I did just, Stephen does a great work here and he really really gets you to think. Uh, we are going to finish up next week, but some of the lessons we can learn from Stephen's testimony here is how can we look at our own lives and see, you know, again, the villains were the religious leaders. These were the bad guys, right? You know, you always got to have a good guy and a bad guy. But how can we look at our own lives and say, how are we like these religious leaders? How are we like ritualistic? How are we like uh, rote? How are we uh, follow the Lord in a way that it's, it's a it's a routine, more of a routine than a relationship. I think the whole point here is, of course, Stephen was trying to show them Jesus is the Messiah, okay? And, and we have a, a bad history of rejecting God's messengers. But he also was trying to show them that get out of that routine, get out of that mindset, get out of that maybe what you're taught by a particular denomination that you have to follow. Go back to the Bible. Go back to God's word. Let God's word be fresh, be in prayer. And, and have that fresh relationship with God all over again. And I think that's a good lesson that we could learn from him. So I just pray that we would look at Stephen's speech and meditate on it. It is the longest speech in the New Testament. And see how the Lord wants to do a fresh work in our hearts. Let's pray. Show them.